This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, and Jeff. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. If we keep talking to one another, we can learn from each other, engage in good faith, remain curious, consider new perspectives, resist ideology and absolute certainty, embrace doubt, see nuance, seek the truth, change our minds, recognize our vast ignorance, and grow into better versions of ourselves. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. And it's something that I want to share. Steve Harrigan is a screenwriter, a journalist, and a writer for Texas Monthly. His books include The Gates of the Alamo and Big Wonderful Thing, A History of Texas. During our conversation, Steve talks about his work and the path that led him to become a full-time writer. Steve's story is one that might be helpful to aspiring writers. He details the meandering road that led to his prolific professional life. He's also one of the kindest and humblest super talented people you will ever come across. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Steve Harrigan. All right, Stephen. Well, first, I just want to thank you for inviting me into your study and workplace and uh, given, given the time to the show. It's great to have you on and, uh, and welcome. Well, thanks. It's good to be good to meet you, and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Likewise, I was thinking about the first question I wanted to ask you, and I thought to get background on you, the first question I might ask you is, who is or who was Mac? Oh, well, Mac was my father, and uh, who I never knew. He he died in a uh, plane crash uh, six months before I was born. He was a uh, a fighter pilot in World War II, and later a, a flight instructor in, uh, uh, in in Washington State, and uh, so he, you know, he was a kind of uh, question mark in my life, and uh, so I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time not thinking about him most of my life yeah. because you know my mother remarried and I had another father, uh, but eventually I think that curiosity caught up with me. To the degree that my two brothers and I went on a uh, uh, on a trek a few years back, climbed the mountain where he had died, and uh, in in, in uh, Washington State, outside of Seattle. When you were a kid, and I know the curiosity did catch up with you, and you you began to learn more about him. What was your what did you know, or or maybe the better question is, what little did you know? What 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 was your impression of the man when you were growing up? Uh, hazy, you know, today I think it, w- it would be so much different, uh, if somebody had died, you know, if, 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 if a, my brother was a year old w- when he died, I was in utero Yeah, and it was very, of course, traumatic for my mother and for, you know, the whole family. I think today they would understand that it's important to talk about that person a lot and to make, make him a presence in, in the, your children's lives. But back then, there seemed to be a kind of, it wasn't a code, but it was just a kind of generic, and this, this World War II generation was so stoic and so uh, 
unrevealing in some ways. And it was, I think the natural impulse was to move on. Uh, And like I said, my mother remarried. I was five when she married Tom Harrigan, whose name I share. And it, uh, it felt, it felt rude and and intrusive to ask about it in a way, Hmm. because I, I, I guess as a little, little kid, I could sense, that the trauma that my mother had experienced uh you know i had a new father it seemed not right to bring you know this ghost into the conversation with him so you know it wasn't like people didn't talk about him i mean he he came up every once in a while and you know we i knew i was supposed to be proud of him you know and i'd seen a couple pictures of him Hmm. but uh that was about it you know, it wasn't, uh, I think I think the trauma of that incident, you know, he had survived World War II. He had been shot down in, you know, in, in the South Pacific and survived and mm. been on a raft and picked up, you know, by a PBY uh, in Japanese-held waters, I mean, and had shot down other pilots. Mm. And uh, having survived all that and then dying kind of accidentally in, in a, training mission i think uh i just think it made it harder for my mother and the rest of my extended family to absorb that Mm. and to talk about it i think you noted in the article you wrote about him um off course that it was a time before grief counselors oh yes way before that i think yeah and uh you know i i don't know that uh i don't know what a grief counselor could have done i mean to sort of lessen the shock and the impact of this uh i'm sure they're i'm I'm sure they're valuable but i i it was it was a time before anybody would have thought of that Mm. i mean there had been so much grief i mean there had been this was three years after the end of world war ii i mean uh so many people were were still absorbing that shock and trying to uh you know move on from it and i think there was a kind of quiet consensus that we don't look back and we look forward over your life, and as you began to look into him more, what eventually did you learn about the man? Who was he? How, how does how does he live on in you? I honestly don't know. I mean, I uh, I think our personalities must have been very different. Mm. Or uh, he's very much he was very much like my older brother Jim. I think in in appearance and in a kind of uh, uh, you know fearless attitude toward life uh you know very uh, he, he i am a total klutz at anything mechan- <laughs> mechanical i don't know how to i can change a light bulb barely but you know jim my brother uh has this you know mechanical ability that i think he shared with with our father uh there was a there was a kind of daringness to him he was a fighter pilot yeah. you know that i i've been a little bit cautiously daring at times in my life but i uh i think i think i get most of my genetic material from the other side of the family but it would it would be curious to me to know how i what i got from him you know and i've i've looked at a couple photographs where i sense something in me some some physical features that i share with him but uh but hardly i've went through my whole life sort of thinking 
that I had sort of one genetic parent, you know, my mother, who I look like and who I think I, I share a lot of, uh, a, you know, just a lot of my basic uh, outlook on life with. Mm. And now you're a writer and have been for a long time. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. Where did that interest come from? Do you remember as a as a kid having a propensity for that type of work? Uh, talk to me about the, the the journey to you actually making a living out of this. Well, discovering that that I liked to write and that I might be good at it and making a living at it are two separate categories. <laughs> uh, but I, I remember, uh, I must have been in fourth grade, fifth grade in school, and we had to write a poem, a Christmas poem. <laughs> and uh, I just noticed, I mean, I did one and I didn't think about it much, but it rhymed and it scanned and it did all the things that a poem is supposed to do. I didn't know those what scans were and yeah. like that, but I noticed that mine was different than the rest of the class. And it, it I... I had this feeling that, you know, the feeling that you get when you discover something that you're good at. Yeah. You know, just a sense of recognition. Uh, and I, I guess I must have held on to that. And I remember I, I started to read, I didn't, I started to read seriously, or at least widely in, when I was in high school. But there was always this, and, uh, you know, my parents had books in the house, and I would look at the, book jackets and look at these photos of writers on the back and hold these books in my hand and just think that was a cool thing mm. and uh in high school i wrote a i remember reading a writing a couple of essays that were praised and that kind of you know for somebody like who wasn't good at anything else <laughs> that was something i paid attention to the fact that i might be good at this and i i uh, had no idea how to go about that. I'd never, you know, I was growing up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Mm. Uh, there were, uh, my parents had met a writer once, I think, at some party. And that was really impressive to me when they came home and said, we we met this guy who said he wrote a book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. as far as it goes. But I, uh, I, I just held on to the idea that this is something I might want to do. And, uh, you know, I started writing poetry, uh, you know, like after college when I was a yard man <laughs> making a living. And then I just started to think I could, uh, maybe I could write a magazine article. I knew I wanted to write a novel, but I didn't know how to start that. I'd never, I'd never met, never talked to a novelist. I'd seen a couple as they came through and gave lectures at, at UT. But I, I just, one day I just was writing, it was writing I mean, pushing my lawnmower, you know, which I did 12 hours a day practically. And I was, my, your mind frees, frees up as you're, as you're doing all this repetitive mechanical yeah. exercise. And I, I started to think maybe I could write a magazine article and there's this magazine called Rolling Stone that's really popular. Maybe I could, you know, send them something and maybe they would write me back. So I, I wrote a, a letter, which I didn't even know to call a query letter, to, to one of the editors at Rolling Stone with this magazine idea or this article idea. And he, he wrote back and said, well, yeah, send it to us. If we like it, we'll, we'll buy it. So I wrote this article, <laughs> sent it to them. They liked it. They paid me $150. You know, I was like, what, 22? 
two, I guess, or something. And I just declared myself a professional writer and just started writing uh, for, uh, because I'd been in Rolling Stone, which was kind of a big deal. Yeah. At the time, I could, you know, get the attention of people at other smaller magazines. And, and around that time, Texas Monthly began, and I kind of got in on the ground floor of writing for them around 1973 or so. So I just, from then on, I was just, uh, you know, I was making like 2000 bucks a year, but I was surviving. And uh, I was, uh, you know, working on a novel at the time and, and, you know, writing magazine pieces. I'm interested in the recognition of talent generally and, and specific to your realization that, damn, maybe this is something I'm good at. How did you know this was an area of life in which you had some talent and how much would you attribute it to natural ability and work? I, you know, for me, it was the course of least resistance. Yeah. There, I mean, if I had aspired to be a, a, a concert pianist, it would have been all work. Yeah. With no, with no outcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but the pleasure of, of writing and of hearing yourself described as a good writer was kind of a drug, you know, and uh, it created a, you know, a self image that I wanted to live up to. And so it, uh, the work came later in a way, mm. you know, I mean, it was hard work, but I knew that the work was worth it because I did have this bent toward, you know, toward writing. It was something, you know, that, you know, if you're a, a football player and you can throw a good pass or you can, you know, you know, run fast, you you know that yeah. I mean it doesn't make you a better person yeah but you you know that you're going to to if you put in the work you can improve and you can maybe be somebody good at it and that was that was the way I felt about writing did you need somebody to tell you that or do you think intuitively you understood that you had this gift this ability that was just a talent that not everybody possesses. I think I, I intuitively understood that there was nobody really except my mother uh, to tell me that. I mean, yeah. she she encouraged me. She recognized it, but you know, she wasn't a, a editor. <laughs> I mean, yeah. she was, you know, she didn't know exactly what I was aiming for, and I didn't. There were no like mentors or anybody like that hanging around. Uh, I just kind of, uh, you know, and I was kind of shy about it i didn't i wouldn't have talked to anybody about it much uh it was kind of it felt uh presumptuous and you know uh kind of weird so i it was an it was kind of a secret hmm. you know for me uh, i knew that my parents valued writing you know because they did have books in their house hmm. and i knew that was that that writers held a, a certain uh level of esteem in, in, in their imagination. So maybe in, in some ways I was trying to to, uh, to impress them. Mm -hmm. But I think mostly I just kind of was listening to that impulse I had that that this is this could be something I could do. Yeah. Um, what was the Rolling Stone article about and how did you come up with it? It was, a, a, this was like 1972 
two, I guess. And I was living in Austin. I was uh, going to like the Armadillo World headquarters, <laughs> you know, listening to music and stuff like that, like everybody did. And I was just aware of the fact that the Armadillo, <laughs> the animal, had become this sort of totem of Austin. It, was this, <laughs> it seemed to embody the Austin of that time. And it, it was kind of a, a shy, <laughs> persistent little animal, you know, that hardly nobody ever noticed. And, you know, there was lots of, there was a guy named Jim Franklin who was a, an art, and he's still around. He was an artist who painted all these great posters and murals depicting armadillos mm-hmm. as a kind of, uh, you know, spirit of Austin for, mm-hmm. for, for a better, one of a better phrase. And so I thought that would be an interesting story, you know, wh- how this city had, had sort of uh, identified itself with this homely little creature. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I went and interviewed Jim Franklin at, at, in his where he lived at the Austin at the Armadillo World Headquarters, mm-hmm. and I had never interviewed anybody before, or seen anybody being interviewed. I didn't know what I was what I was doing, but I, I just yeah did what I could, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I wrote this piece and sent it to them, and I was shocked when they wrote back said they wanted to use it. That has to be an amazing moment where you realize that something that you may have done just for fun can potentially be turned into something that can help you support yourself in in life. The journey from that first that first income, the first paycheck from doing something you enjoyed doing and and writing that piece. Talk to me about that journey from that moment to a conclusion by you that this is now me. I I have steady work. I have the ability to be able to consistently support myself doing my craft. Well, I, I consistently is a <laughs> is a aspirational term. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I did I, I did manage to support myself and our our family mm. doing that. Uh but it's you know it was a rocky a long rocky time because uh at the beginning you know, no harm, no foul. $150, which was, I was paid for that Rolling Stone piece. My rent was $100. Uh, so I was good for that month. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I could buy food and everything. And, you know, I could still mow yards a little bit. But I could I could combine, you know, writing magazine pieces and mowing yards. I did that for about a year. And then I realized I can, you know, I can, I can make a living at this. It's a small living. But enough of a living to to pay the rent and get by, and I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have any dreams beyond being able to pay my rent and write the next thing. Hmm. You know, there was no. Uh, wow, I'd like to have a nice house. I'd like to travel in Europe. I'd like to, you know, have a nice car. I didn't. None of that ever occurred to me. What I wanted was to be able to support myself as a writer, and so. As a result, my horizons, my financial horizons, were pretty low, uh, and I, you know, was able to to get by on, you know, I don't know, two thousand bucks a year, whatever it was. Hmm. Did you have any writers that you had looked up to and that you you knew about their career, you knew their writing styles, and you thought to yourself, "This is a north star for me professionally," or or were you kind of really just doing this on the fly? Well, I, I developed those. Uh, you know, the, the, an understanding of, of 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 other writers that I 
might want to emulate, or at mm. least it might want to seem like. Yeah. Uh, and at first, no. I mean, in high school, I was, uh, when I first started reading, for real, what I discovered that I liked the best to read were just kind of big, fat novels, yeah. <laughs> uh, historical novels in particular. I remember reading all of Kenneth Roberts' work. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he he was a big deal in like, the, I guess, the 30s and 40s. He mm. wrote all these books like Northwest Passage mm. uh, that were about the American Revolution. And for some reason, those, it wasn't the, I'm not sure it was the writing itself or the books itself, but the the grappling with the past and sort of bringing the past to life really, really inspired me. Uh, I read a lot of, I didn't differentiate between literature and, and popular fiction. Mm. I still don't very much. So, you know, there, I'd read, you know, Hemingway, of course, was a huge, uh, you know, kind of dazzling uh I wouldn't say model, because I, knew, but uh, an inspiration. Like how, how can you distill writing down to that, to that, you know, beautifully, you know, pristine, uh, very, uh, very minimal uh, sentence and mm-hmm. observation, and, and have it, have it, you know, expand your awareness in a way that it did. So I, uh, you know, there were people like that. Uh, there was never any one one writer that I uh, I really thought, oh, that's who I want to be. Yeah, uh, and I, I've noticed that uh, as a, I've taught writing and for a long time at the Michener Center for Writers at UT, and I've noticed a lot of students almost very very consciously are trying to replicate yeah. um, other writers, and it. Uh, I don't know if they're. I don't know if they are aware of how. Uh, I, I mean, it's a universal thing. I'm sure I did it as well, but I don't know if I did it as consciously as I thought they might have been doing it. Almost are like they're like exercises in a in a way, you know, to try to. Uh, there was a period where all the students were writing Cormac McCarthy kind of stuff, <laughs> and then another period where they're all writing like George Saunders, and uh, so you. Uh, I mean, I think it's important as a young writer to kind of study and emulate people but uh i never had that specific uh goal in mind of like being the next hemingway yeah. or faulkner or anything like that so you knew you had a talent you knew the talent the feedback you were getting at least at the beginning was was positive did you seek additional feedback did you take classes were there things that you did to hone your craft and try to improve at that point in your career yeah th- there was uh there were uh at, at ut where I, t- I took a there wasn't i didn't know that there was that you could really study creative writing yeah i mean i was an english major i, I became an, i majored in english because i thought that's what you did if you wanted to be a writer i was dead wrong about that <laughs> i think because most of it seemed to be kind of academically you know, directed uh, toward analysis and that kind of thing. I wasn't interested in that at all. But I did take a couple creative writing classes. There were only a couple, one in poetry and one in short stories. And I wasn't really interested in writing short stories for some reason. Hmm. So really there wasn't much for me to do in those classes. It didn't, you know, it, it wasn't, there were like, as I recall, 30 people in the class or something. It wasn't like an intensive workshop with only a few people and I 
I, even you know, having been in in uh, at the Michener Center, you know, for you know twenty years or so, I kind of taught on and off there. I realized I would be I was an okay teacher, but I would have been a very poor student hmm. because I didn't want anybody else talking about my work. Yeah, <laughs> I I kind of knew what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I'm sure that any criticisms anybody made of me would have been valid, but they might have been crushing, yeah. and they might have been demoralizing. And so, uh, I I I don't think the idea of uh, again it was a kind of secret. You know, I I I worked on it in private, and I in, after I remember after finishing my first novel and having it published, it was. It was a little bit of a shock to realize that other people were going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like it, it, it didn't quite occur to me that, that it was sort of open for discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it was very personal for you that the, the writing and the work, it was something almost like a deal you made with yourself or it was in something very deep within you that was driving you to create this art. Well, I think that's true for anybody who does any form of art or craft or whatever. I mean, it's, it is personal because it's who you are Yeah, and you create this identity or, uh, you discover this identity and you know, your choices are either to affirm it or to, let it go. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, uh, you know, I'm kind of a sticky personality that way. When, when I, when something sits right with me, I kind of s stay with it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's true with writing or, you know, music or, you know, anything. It's, it's, you're, you're, you're not just, it's not just a, a hobby. I mean, it can be a hobby, and maybe in many cases it should be a hobby. But if you're, if you identify with it so strongly, as I did and other people do, then it's it's who you are, and and you're, you don't have much room to move from yeah. that. Do you regard it as a calling? I I don't want to say that. I I think I've. Uh, I mean, the word calling from my Catholic education <laughs> has too much. Uh, baggage baggage yeah <laughs> i mean i don't it's not god calling you yeah. it's yeah. like it's it's uh it's just a, a discovery mm -hmm. of another aspect of yourself that you might not have known was there i mean you know it's not i mean a lot of my life has been trying to play down the the high-toned expectations that people have of writers, you know, or authors, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like uh, the idea that it's more valuable or more worthy or more important than any other occupation. So uh, there's a there's an air of mystery, I think, about about any craft or art that that you don't quite understand how somebody does it, you yeah. know? But, uh, you know, I, I think we can kind of, uh, I mean, you know, if somebody is a, is a carpenter, which is extremely mysterious to me, how you could build a house. Yeah. I don't think that person would think of themselves as having a calling. They're yeah. just good at it and they like it or they make money at it or whatever. And I, I kind of feel like that's, that's the same with writing or any other, other, you know, art or craft. Yeah. I have, uh, I'm in my mid thirties now and I, I have friends of mine that 
are, are kind of at this point where they may have been doing a job that in no way speaks to them for the past decade and they've been doing it almost exclusively for financial reasons and i get the sense that there is and i identify with this to some degree that it, when you're in that place there is a bit of a feeling of being adrift and not really being in touch with something deeper in yourself that may point you in a direction that would be more fulfilling a more more fulfilling way to spend your time you spoke to this a little bit just a minute ago about how you either if you do identify with something very strongly you either kind of honor that and decide to pursue it or you don't if if i'm uh, uh, phrasing that relatively correctly in terms of how you think about that idea how were you able to honor that and to nurture it in your own life and and dedicate yourself to it well i don't know that there was much of a choice for me i mean i i knew that the the your friends that you're talking about who are in, in jobs that don't call to them. Yeah. They're just, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But I just knew that I didn't want that. I didn't want an unfulfilling job. Uh, I didn't want some, I didn't want that for my life. I wanted, I wanted to pursue the thing that meant the most to me and that seemed to, uh, seem to give the most to me. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I, when I thought of other jobs I could do, I was, I mean, I was just dispirited. I wanted to be happy. Yeah. And I wanted to do the thing that I wanted to do. And I was willing, I don't think I was consciously willing to give up stuff for it. I just, it just never occurred to me to want those other things mm. more than I wanted this. Yeah. So, you know, I was happy with not making a lot of money or very much money at all. Uh, again, if I could pay my bills, that was that was just fine. Hmm. And then you go to Texas Monthly, right? At some point in your career, mm-hmm. talk to me about that area, that period of your life between the first article and getting on staff with that publication, and and what the work was like for you, maybe at the beginning, in related to Texas Monthly specifically. Well, the interesting thing about Texas Monthly was that nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> And, you know, this was a, the Texas Monthly was the dream of Mike Levy, the publisher, who mm. had this idea that, uh, you know, there were, there were things called city magazines in other, con- other parts of the country, like Philadelphia Magazine. And he had the idea that Texas was a coherent enough place that it could support mm. a state magazine. Um, and he was right. And, uh, and he hired, uh, People like Bill Broyles and Greg Curtis, who are all both, all of those guys are good friends of mine. Mm. And uh, they started this magazine, and Bill had never edited a magazine. Greg, uh, Bill was the editor in chief at that point. Greg was, I don't know what his senior editor or something Mm. like that. None of them had ever done any of this work. I had never, I'd written like one or two, three magazine articles. I still didn't know how to write a magazine article. And I was, for, for most of that time, for most of the first uh, few years, I was a freelance writer. I, I joined the staff in, I think, 1980 for about 10 years. But I was, uh, I just threw myself into it. And I, you know, I told, told them, here's a story I'd like to write. Here's another story I'd like to write. They'd come to me and say, what about this story? Would you like to do that? And I just taught myself how to do it. I'd never studied journalism. I'd never, uh, I'd never taking courses in it i didn't know how to take notes i didn't know anything yeah 
but you know that was how I taught myself and uh, you know it was kind of agony at first trying to f- figure out how how to f- not just how to get the information that I needed but how to structure the uh, magazine story how to how to write it in a way that was interesting hmm. and you know I, I banged my head against the wall many many sleepless nights trying to figure out how to do this but eventually I began to understand that I kind of had a, a a grip on it i had sort of my own voice i had sort of my own interest and uh it became i wouldn't say easier but it became mm-hmm. I, I felt like less of a fraud the more i did it what were the it sounds like it was extremely difficult at the beginning what were what did you learn maybe the the big hacks or the big uh, processes that uh, you discovered over probably a lot of trial and error, I would imagine, over the over the years of writing these pieces that really helped you to hone the craft to become a better writer to be able to produce these articles. Well, the main thing for me was to get the information. I I, I was more of a stylist than I was a reporter. Mm. I, I what was what what I came into I came into this with guns blazing, <laughs> you know, thinking I was going to write this immortal prose, you know, about some you know lame. <laughs> event or something and so i all i was putting the cart before the horse i was i was thinking too much about the writing and not thinking not doing the work of 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 really getting the information i needed not interviewing enough people not doing enough reading not going on enough reporting trips and i realized it took me a while to realize that when you know those sleepless nights i was talking about when i was banging my head against the wall the reason I was doing that, I guess I, I mean, some people would call that writer's block or mm. something. I would just call it frustration. Yeah. And it was because I didn't know enough. I thought that I had reported the story, but I hadn't really. And I hadn't, I should have called this person back, again, you know, again and again. I should have gone to that place again and gotten more information, gotten more, you know, sort of color commentary about what was going on. And so I, I, it was a it was a a long term course in humility, you know mm-hmm. that this is okay, Mister Smarty Pants Writer. This is not about writing. This is about uh, you know talking to the reader, making sure being honestly reporting and honestly you know writing a story that would that would engage a reader and and make these make make what you're talking about clear to that reader. Mm-hmm. And rather than obfuscate it with a bunch of kind of smarty pants prose, so that took me a while, and you know it's still something I'm working on. You, you know, even I, I'm not a natural born reporter. Mm. You know, I have lots of friends who are. I, to me, the the hardest moments in in writing journalism were getting over my shyness to pick mm. up the phone and call somebody. Or to uh, you know, I, I had this. This uh, there was a, a, a image of myself as somebody who who thought he, uh, he he couldn't do this for some reason. I was just not. I'm not a. I mean, I'm not as shy as I used to be, but I was pretty shy, and, mm. and I, I didn't I didn't pursue it aggressively enough. Mm. And I think that aggression is is one of the keys to a to a really good reporter and I just don't have it. Yeah. I I do have uh, uh, and, and also I'm I I'm much more at home 
sort of sitting by myself, I'm say I'm writing about some subject, you know, some place, I'm much more at home standing there all by myself thinking and taking notes than I am interviewing somebody. Yeah. When I think a real reporter is somebody who's much more at home just, you know, plunging into it, talking to as many people as possible. Yeah. You know, that you know, mixing it up. I'm just not that person. You said earlier that one of the decision points or one of the reasons why you stuck with writing was that you wanted to be happy. You wanted to do work that was meaningful. You know, as we're talking about, especially these early years, but I would imagine this continues throughout your career. It's frustration. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of work that goes into it. That doesn't always sound like a blissful experience. So what was it that continued to make you want to do the work even though it wasn't always blissful is it the difference between happiness and meaning that you found the work very meaningful to you um i'm I'm, i guess i'm thinking about people out there who are listening to this conversation who feel like they have something that they really a craft that they really want to dedicate themselves to but uh are under this disney-esque notion that it's supposed to be all fun all the time how do you think about that as it applies to your career in writing? Well, it's you know it's certainly not all fun all yeah. the time, and it, it's it's the end result that's that's fun at first. Mm. It's like seeing your name in print or you know getting a copy of your first book. And to me, the the evolution that has to happen is the fun has to be in the process of writing. Mm. I mean, at some point, seeing your name in print isn't going to be enough. Uh, you have to take satisfaction from from the actual process, mm. and you know you can have a a very frustrating day of writing, which which happens almost every day. Yeah. But you you turn a phrase or you kind of nail a sentence. Anything. I mean, that's a rush. Yeah. I mean, that's exciting. I mean, you know, when you're talking about a well, the last book I wrote had like 320,000 words in it. 320, yeah, 320,000 right, words, yeah, something yeah. like that. Huge book, physically. Uh, but there were, so that's an endless journey. Mm-hmm. But along that way, you know, you'll, you'll write a sentence or you'll make a metaphor or an observation that you just think, Wow, this makes it worth it. It's a tiny little fragment of that. You know, it's like six words out of that three hundred twenty thousand. Yeah. But it it confirms that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And um, it's those little moments of 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 excitement and 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 thrill that are very unique to you and and secret to you. Yeah. That that make you want to keep going. And it sounds like it was, I loved how you put this earlier, that these external expectations and how that can mess with the writing process. It it seems like this was a very, this was an inner journey largely for you. It was personally meaningful. Yes, you liked having other people be able, I would imagine, to see your name in print and be able to read your material, but it spoke to something in you. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, it's back to that self-identity. You know, it, it... it shored up that self-identity uh, and made me as a person less diffuse. <laughs> yeah. I had uh, I had a sense of who I was. I, I was on a, an errand, if not a mission, you know, if not a calling. Yeah. I mean, I was I I had an agenda, and you know, it sharpens your life. It gives you 
uh, it gives you a purpose. And, uh, you know, I think that's true. I mean, it's much more fun, for instance, if you're going on a trip somewhere, you to, to have a goal in mind, to like learn, you want to learn something or see some specific thing rather than just go on this goalless, yeah. <laughs> you know, trip. And so it's, it's the same kind of thing. You know, it's like you're, you channel your, your awareness into a, a tighter, you know, sluice yeah. <laughs> in a way. And, and you're, you're, uh, you're, you're more alive that way somehow. You're, yeah. you're moving faster. You're moving more directly. Feeling like you're growing right, in, in yeah. some way. And that you're going somewhere. Yeah. The, I'm always curious about people who have a craft like you. We're sitting in, in, your, in your study, uh, which I immediately identified with and would love to have one of these at some point in my life because I, I could happily, I have a very strong introverted side to me as well that just loves books and quiet and private work and, and um, I aspire to having something similar to this at one point in my life. What does an, when you were a reporter, let's say, for example, or, or when you're writing a book, what does a great working day look like to you? It starts with having nothing on the calendar. Hmm. You know, if I'm, uh, if I've got a, got a lunch with somebody back in the pre pandemic yeah. days, or if I had a dentist appointment, <laughs> it kind of, you know, I mean, if there's something nagging at me that I got to do. Uh, it, it just, it, in a way it's good because it struck, helps you structure the day. But the, I, you know, my, my most blissful days as a writer are those days when I, I can sit down in my office and realize all I got to do today is write. And, you know, it might not, it might not be any fun. It might not go well, but uh, I've got the whole day to mess around. Mm. And that, uh, that feels really good. And, you know, if I can write, uh, I don't have a, I'm not one of those people who sit, sets themselves a, a, a goal of like two pages or X number of words per day. But if I can, if I can write well, if I can, uh, you know, you know, make, make a paragraph work, mm. I feel like, wow, that was a good day. And uh, if I have a bad day where nothing seems to be going well, I know from experience that if I come back the next day and read over what I've written, it'll be better than I thought. Mm. And so, you know, one of the one of the things you learn as a writer is that your moods uh, have not, not much to do with it. Mm. Whether it was easy to write or hard to write, it's kind of the same thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you read it over, it's like, well, you know, that was hard work, or I didn't, I didn't think I'd got that, but I actually did, or if I didn't get it, I know now how to how to get it. I see by by how doing it wrong, I can do it right. Mm. And uh, so, to me, you know, one of the most important things to realize is no work is ever wasted. Mm. You know, every everything you write, every every minute you put in trying to write mm. is a is progress. Mm. And you know that's hard to sometimes hard to grasp when you're feeling despair. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say you do have a, a day where there, there's no dentist appointment, there's no meeting. You have truly, it's a Tuesday, and you have nothing on your calendar except whatever you want to explore and write. Do you have a consistent time you get up, a time you go for a walk, a time you have dinner 
in your house? What what is what is a day if there are any consistent habits look like from that perspective? Uh, yeah, I get up about six, usually about between six thirty and seven. Mm-hmm. I typically in the morning I will go for a you know four mile walk, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Listen to a podcast or a book while I'm walking, or I might uh, I've got a just got a rowing machine during the pandemic or i might do you know 30 or 40 minutes on the rowing machine Mm -hmm. you know have breakfast uh read the paper that takes you know you know by roughly nine o'clock i'm i'm out in my office looking at my watch to see if it's time for lunch yet (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh on a typical day i'll you know i'll i'll do yeah, typically, to be honest, you know, another hour or so of email and stuff mm. like that and fooling around, and then I'll sort of start to get down to work. It'll take me, you know, and then I'll, if I can get anything at all done, I will have uh, have earned the, the right to go have lunch <laughs> in my house. And yeah, uh, typically, yeah, this is, we're talking pandemic lifestyle now. Yeah. It's like I usually have lunch at home. Uh, go back out to work. Uh, often, you know, we have stuff to do with our grandkids or kids, and so there might be kids, you know, people, kids over at the house, and mm. uh, and we usually usually eat on the early side, uh, you know, five thirty or six, and then if I'm really going on a book or a, or a piece of writing, I might slip out back to my office for another hour or two, but. You know, we might as well, we usually just, I might read, but mostly watch TV after that, you know. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of my day. Am I right? You're the father of three? Father of three girls. Father of three girls. I I have wondered, I don't have kids at at this point in my life, and I so identify with your description of what an ideal day looks like because I just love that. It it brings me just a lot of inner calmness and peace and inner exploration of exploring ideas and books and journaling and writing and i always like to also get outside how raising a family is also i'm sure both a joy and a lot of work too um how did that how were you able to manage both being a craftsman an artist a writer while also engaging in in that and trying to be a good dad i guess i'm i'm really curious around like the time and energy allocation if you felt like for a while you know your writing was just not going to be a bit secondary to your your family how did you think through that maybe before you had kids and during it well, never thought through it <laughs> <laughs> so you know it was it you know it was you know we should, yeah, we should have probably thought, yeah. how are we going to make this work? But, you know, you throw yourself in and then you make it work. And in our case, uh, my wife made the decision, you know, you know, that she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, which meant I had to, you know, I had to step up and really actually make money yeah. <laughs> to support. Yeah. You know, I ended up supporting five people on a freelance writer's income, which yeah. was a... You know, sometimes it was kind of an adventure a lot yeah. of times. Yeah. You know, our vac- we take vacations, but they would always be tied to a travel article I was writing where somebody was paying the bills and stuff like that. But, but, but what happened, what the, you know, the, the, the great thing about that's her decision to do that was that she 
you know, I mean, it's kind of a 50s marriage in a way, yeah. 1950s. You know, she does the housework. I mean, I, you know, and I, I did a lot of the carpooling and stuff like that. Yes, you know, she did most of that. But I was, you know, I was here, you know, if, unless I was out of town, uh, which I would do, you know, frequently, but be gone. I tried to be gone no more than like two or three days. Mm. So, you know, I, I, w- I was around all day. Mm. I mean, for the most part. And, uh, you know, we had dinner every night. She cooked. Yeah. <laughs> we ate. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was, more, it was challenging because, you know, we had three young children who needed our attention. And, you know, when you're, when you're in the middle of a big project, you're, as a writer, your mind is just filled with that. So I was, you know, I, I could say I was a little bit distracted at times, but, uh, you know, I don't think I ever missed a, you know, soccer game or a play or a hmm. band concert or anything like that, unless I was really, you know, out of town for, you know, I couldn't get back. But I, you know, I was, you know, it was just all a package. I yeah. mean, I, I wrote at home. I, we were sitting out in an office in my backyard now, but when the girls were young and I, I, my office was like right in the middle, it wasn't an office. It was just a, you know, like kind of a, uh, yeah, like a closet almost off mm-hmm. the, off our bedroom, and so I was in the middle of the house listening mm-hmm. to everything going on, trying to focus, and yeah. uh, you know. But it was uh, it was great, you know. But it it's uh, it, it's a challenge, I think, for anybody to to raise children and to do it well and to be attentive. And uh, it's not more of a challenge for a writer, but I think your headspace is taken up quite a bit. I mean, you don't come home at at the end of the day. Because I'm always, I was home already, yeah, right. and and I, you know, there's no there's no cutoff valve for for your thoughts about oh, what did I, how can I fix that, or what what's the next chapter going to be like? I mean, it's just all swirling in your head mm-hmm. all the time. So it's, uh, you know, I was a little sometimes absent minded, I guess, to, you know, to an, to an objective observer, but but you know, I was doing my best. Do you think it helped you? It helped you focus on the work having that kind of responsibility and and like you said i mean it, it was time for you to to really step up with your i'm sure productivity and um and workload do you do you think it helped you in some way to focus you and to get the best out of you well without a doubt you know for one thing it raised the stakes yeah <laughs> I mean, right. you know uh not just the financial stakes but the you had some i had something to write about i had something to care about i mean it wasn't just me mm. and it was uh I, I it, it focused me. It, it reoriented my thinking about what was important. Uh, as much as I cared about my job and my books and my articles and my screenplays, I cared more about my family. You yeah. know, and that's a uh, uh, in a really good way a destabilizing revelation. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're when you're just by yourself and you've got your own person self to take care of uh it just made me you know by degrees by many degrees it made me more aware of the world more aware of other people uh more uh, made me feel more responsible uh for what i was doing and and it made me question what i was doing more so uh yeah i think it was a crucial i mean with uh, without i mean for me without having a family i i'm not sure even though I would have had the time, more time to be a writer, I'm not sure I would have been as a productive a writer or would have been as worthwhile a writer. Hmm. 
Well, the the most recent book that I, I want to talk to you about, which I, I saw earlier, the big wonderful thing, um, is a, a bit of a tome. I think you you said the number earlier was something like three hundred and twenty thousand words related to that book. Um, how did the idea for this massive project start in the first place? Not with me. <laughs> <laughs> it started with with uh, Dave Hamrick, who was the uh, director of UT Press at the time, and he he decided uh, that Texas needed a new, you know, a new all soup to nuts history of itself, and thought, you know thought that I was one person who might consider wanting to do that. And I shied away from that idea for a long time. He kept coming back to me and asking. I kept saying no. But it finally just, it wasn't that he wore me down, but I kind of wore myself down in saying no. I, you know, I've lived here most of my life. I've lived through a lot of Texas history. I've worked through a lot of Texas history and some of the articles I've written for Texas Monthly. And it felt ultimately like, boy, this this is an impossible challenge, but could be really rewarding and interesting. And so I finally said yes. And, and you know, there were there were no restrictions. You know, there, Dave's, Dave didn't say it has to be this long, it has to do this. It's just, you know, my instructions were write a history of Texas. And so... That's what I did, and it took a took about six years, mm-hmm. uh, but it was uh, a really interesting process. I learned a lot about Texas, obviously, but I also learned about, a lot about how to write a book, how to write a book like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it was on the job training. I was teaching myself, what, you know, by trial and error. But it was, it, you know, it, it ultimately became a lot of fun. Yeah. I told you this before the interview that I grew up in in uh, northwestern Pennsylvania, and uh, at least one of my brothers was shocked when I decided to move to Texas from uh, living in California for almost ten years. When I was a kid, we used to watch Walker, Texas Ranger, and I think there is this throughout America this idea that is linked um, that has linked John Wayne movies to to Texas, uh, sort of a, a cowboy culture. There's a lot more just in having lived here for three years and exploring the state and reading a bit about the history. It's obviously a far more complicated, detailed story. When people ask you a simple question like, what is the history of Texas? Or um, how do you describe this place? Maybe beginning at the beginning of the book and where you explored the state um, in the beginning of Big Wonderful Thing. Well, there's no easy answer to what this state is. It's, you know, now I think the latest census says we're 29 million something people. Those are like 29 million individuals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, there have been, the history of Texas goes back, if you want to include prehistory, which should, probably at least 15,000 years. Uh, so that's a lot of, a lot of, people in a lot of places and you know texas is not a it's not that defined a thing i Mm. mean it's it's our borders were only fixed in like 1850 Mm. so uh but what holds it together as a concept i think is the fact that it was an independent nation for 10 years and uh 
a nation that was embattled, constantly at war with Mexico, constantly fighting with Native Americans, trying to expand, trying to conquer. There's this uh, sort of this identity that was forged during that time as a, a you know, sort of self-reliance and independence that is not true of everyone in the state uh, now or ever. But it, it seems to be a kind of uh, general idea that Texans have of themselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's still still current. And, you know, you may have, you know, somebody like you who moved here from California three years ago, you can't help but notice that that mojo is working here. Mm-hmm. You know, that, and, you know, you may resist it, you may embrace it, but but it's there. I mean, this this very emphatic sense of place and of identity that, you know, is, is, uh, is I think, stronger than in other places. Mm. And maybe because that's, we're such a much more spread out, bigger place, but I think we have a more uh, congealed history in a way. You know, we have, uh, we have a kind of, uh, you know, in, in stories like the Alamo and stuff, we have a, a kind of birth story. And you know, not all that many places have that that we ha- that people hang on to so so strongly and argue about so vehemently. Mm. You mentioned that it was a six year journey to to write that book and to do all of the research. And I have to imagine that the people who suggested that you write this book knew that you were damn well qualified to explore this and to spend a lot of your energy and time writing a book like that. Given how much you had already known about the state prior to doing the research for for the book, what surprised you during that journey, during that research that still resonates for you about the state? Well, I think one thing that's, I don't know if it's a surprising, but kind of uh, just interesting is how, how odd it is that it still thinks of itself as one place. Mm. Because, you know, we have, uh, I think it's like, I can't remember now, 250,000 square miles mm. of, of Texas. And, mm. you know, we've got uh, coastlines, we've got seacoasts, we've got forests, you know, deep, thick forests, we've got open prairie, deserts, mountains. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a vast landscape, a very varied landscape. And it's been peopled with with people who have been at war with each other in one way or another for, uh, you know, as far back as you can go. And, and yet there is this coherent sense of what a Texan is that still lingers. You know, mm-hmm. it seems like this place should have split apart into different identities, into different factions, into different states, you know, many years ago. And yet it wants to hold itself together. And I think that, you know, that cohesive identity, in spite of all the divisive qualities of the landscape and of the people, is something really interesting and surprising. Hmm. I know one of the things that surprised me when I moved here was just the utter diversity of the state and how in a lot of the cities that I have explored since being here, there are often... Uh, this is a place of refuge for immigrants, for refugees. Um, there's a degree of sort of mixing among Texans that I found surprising ethnically and and culturally as well. 
Um, the Texas that we are now living in, I think we just added a few congressional seats recently within the past week or so. It, it, it strikes me, I, I've read Larry Wright's book, God Save Texas, which I know is dedicated to you, if I remember correctly. And he was speaking about um, what is projected to happen in the state in this century and how it really is a reflection of the country and sort of as Texas will go, so will go the country politically and culturally. Um, how do you, given the trends, given what you know about modern Texas, how do you see this state evolving and changing and influencing America over the next century? You know, one of the funny things about having written a book about of history is that people keep asking you to predict the future. <laughs> and How's that going? I'm not, I'm not that good an historian. You know, I mean, I'm barely an historian. I'm, I'm a guy who who took on the task of writing a history, but I don't. Uh, I don't have any confidence in 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 projecting where we're going. I yeah. mean, I think Texas. Yes, it it is emblematic of the rest of the United States. I mean, it is that perfect purple you know, purpling state yeah. that may go blue, that may stay red, uh, that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a continual admixture of people and, and philosophies that are changing it. I mean, I do think it is, I just think it's interesting that, it, yeah, I, to, I think I told this to Larry, and, but when he was writing his book, God Save Texas, there's a, you look at the, at the map of the United States, and everything funnels down to Texas. It's like in a, it's like the ballast in the hole, <laughs> you know. And uh, it's, you know, it's just going to it's going to draw people here. It's going to be uh, a uh, representative of everything that's happening in the country. I mean, I, I'm so fascinated, like what's happening at the Alamo right now. Mm. I don't know if you've followed this, but there is a a, a very contentious fight about how to re how to uh, you know spruce up the Alamo to make it more of an historical site and all the rather than just a kind of a tourist attraction mm. and and there's all these people and various political and cultural stakeholders who are trying to grab control of the narrative of what the Alamo is mm. and that is. You know, you, you look at everything that's happening in the country right now with, uh, you know, this reassessment of what we are as a country, who we are, Confederate monuments coming down, you know, there's racial justice being like at the forefront of everything. And you look at, uh, at the Alamo and that is, I mean, there's no more perfect example of people fighting over over the meaning of a place and the meaning of our history than what's happening at the Alamo right now. And uh, so I think we'll, whether we'll continue to, whether we lead the, lead the rest of the country in these, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the weather, the kind of, you know, political and, and cultural weather that's going on or whether we're just emblematic of that in the future. I think Texas is going to be a, a huge player. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a gigantic state. It's a gigantic accumulation of people. It can't not be a, a, a power player. Yeah. What is the fight about in, uh, related to the Alamo? And, and how, how do you view its application to the rest of the country? Well, it's a it's a proxy political battle, yeah. I think, between ultimately when you distill it down, between uh, 
the far right, you know, represented by people like Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, and the, what, what, I don't know if you want to, what terms you want to use, but people who want to put the, put the story of the Alamo in the context of, uh, in a larger context of Spanish colonial history, of slavery, of civil rights, because in, in the, the Woolworths department store that's on the, the western edge of the Alamo compound was, was one of the you know, primary places in San Antonio that was segregated, hmm. where there was a sit-in there. So there are people who want to isolate uh, the idea of the Alamo as being only the center of a of a battle for freedom, yep. you know, against yep. tyranny, and then there are the people who are saying, "Hey, wait a minute! There's a there's a broader story, uh, a more troublesome story, uh, with with deep roots in our culture and and uh, you know indications for where we're going." And so, I'm not saying anybody is right or wrong exactly. It's it's op- it's up for grabs. But the fact that it's up for grabs. You know, to me, is is just uh, representative of how the whole notion of what the United States is, mm. who we are, that's also up for grabs. And we're, you know, we're we've we fought this vicious culture war in the last, you know, well, certainly in the last four years. It's continuing, you know, after after Trump's defeat, mm. uh, but it's gonna, it's not gonna go away. I mean, we saw what happened on January sixth, and yeah. there is. Um, you know that is stirring everywhere, and uh, you know this 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 raging debate, if you could call it that, <laughs> over over what America is. And yeah. I think you can. Uh, I think the Alamo is a perfect place to study that. Yeah, I know. Uh, this is another thing that Larry talked about a lot in his book was the difference between the Texas of his youth and the Texas that he found now and has found as an adult and that I think earlier in his life he was mentioning that that was this was not a place he ever wanted to come back to and then he had an experience around the Austin area I think in the 80s where he wanted to come back and and uh, and be here you have spent a lot of your life also in Texas and kind of as we begin to kind of wind the conversation down I'd love to maybe in closing on the subject of Texas um get your personal experience and, and observations about how the state has changed in, in your lifetime and your experience. Yeah, it's, it's well, so many ways. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, it was just, it, it felt like a smaller place, yeah. <laughs> even though it's always bragged about being such a big place. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it, it felt more rural. It felt more distant, even though I was living in cities like Abilene and Corpus Christi and Austin, it felt, felt uh not urban if not it didn't feel ur- rural but it felt not urban it didn't feel like these were city cities yeah uh i never lived in a big city like dallas or houston it felt distant you know it felt uh uh we weren't it didn't feel like we were part of the united states in a lot of ways i mean the united states felt like something outside our borders uh, you know it was partly that's geographic you know, geographical. I mean, you you know, if you grow up like as I did in uh, Corpus Christi, I mean, you're much closer to Mexico than yeah. you are to the rest of the United States, and so there was this sense of you know of isolation, and uh, you know, there was no when I was a kid, when I was in college, even a little few years later, 
there was no uh, national newspaper. There was no, you couldn't subscribe. I mean, I guess people could subscribe to the New York Times but or the Washington Post, but Wall Street Journal, but I never saw them, <laughs> you know? And so there was your local newspaper. There was your local TV station that had news for 15 minutes every day. <laughs> and you didn't feel... Uh, in any particular way connected to the rest of the country. Hmm. That uh, that has changed. Texas has uh, muscled its way into the middle of the country, into, yeah. into the center of the conversation, you know. Uh, and it's it, partly that's a result of, 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 you know, economic development, both, you know, and population development and stuff like that. But it also is just, at a, you know, a, a larger awareness of, of, of the rest of the world has come come to us, yeah. or we've brought it to ourselves. So uh, I, I feel like, uh, I, I guess the main thing I feel compared to when I was a kid is is more connected to the world. Uh, Texas is not, uh, Texas is defiant still. It doesn't want to be, doesn't want to be part of the United States, not really. <laughs> you know, it wants to be its own thing. But it is, you know, it's made itself uh, uh, a player uh, on the national stage that that it wasn't quite in the same way before. Mm. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, of course, we had Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn and John Nance Garner, all these people who are making making Texas a player on the national stage. But I, I think the rest of the country resented Texas without respecting it. <laughs> I think they kind of realize they have to respect it now because it's just too too big a place. Yeah. Yeah. The last topic I want to explore with you is um, kind of directed for creative types that might be listening to this. And we talked about your early writing career and, and you noticing a, a talent or some sort of inner compass about uh, wanting to pursue your craft. And I feel like there are a lot of people out there who have that impulse and don't know what to do with it. Um, don't see an economic future for what they feel like they really want to do with their energy and their time. One of the things that struck me and you, as you were telling your story was it seemed like you had very low expectations in terms of, um, you know, money that you would make. Uh, you weren't, didn't sound like you were particularly interested in owning a lot of stuff that really it was the work itself that was meaningful to you and that you were willing to adapt. I'm projecting a little bit. And so you can tell me if, if I'm, if I'm off base, um, what advice would you give someone who has an artistic bent and is worried about the financial side of life um, in, in terms of what to do when, you know, taking them back to maybe at the time when you were cutting grass and you were 22 or 23 years old, what advice would you give, you know, a writer, a podcaster, a, an artist of some kind um, for how, what, how to think about the future, what steps they might want to consider uh, about what to do with their gift or their um, their their uh, their interest that they want to pursue. Well, I think it's a mistake to assume that if I'm going to be a writer or if I'm going to be whatever, I have to make a living at it. Yeah, 
I think that is a that is a big weight to put on yourself. Yeah, sure. And you know, nothing wrong with having a job. Yeah. Uh, I think even a job that you don't really connect to when you're doing it every day, you're growing in it every day, you're gaining respect among your colleagues, you, you begin to create a sense of, of self-worth. Yeah. You know, and I think self-worth is what feeds your life as an artist. And so let's say you're managing a bowling alley and you're working there eight hours a day, but you've got two hours on the weekend to write a novel. Use those two hours to write the novel. You know, yeah. it doesn't. You don't have to do it all day, every day. Yeah. And it, you, you can think of it as a hobby. You can think of it as a passion. You can think of it as whatever you want. But if you enjoy doing it, if 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 you enjoy having done it, if you enjoy struggling with it and trying to come out the other side of, of a project, you know, you don't. There's no rule that says you have to make a living at it. Yeah. And uh, I just think uh, people people put too much on themselves you know uh particularly with writing i think uh you know i, I think because writing is so closely connected to identity <laughs> it's like it's a statement of who you are yeah. and a, ve- a very obvious statement whereas if you want to play you know i know plenty of people who are recreational piano players or guitar players they're not they're not they don't hate themselves for for make not making a living at it. They enjoy it, yeah. and that's the same with writing. I mean, it's just you can you can enjoy it and just get what you can out of it. If it turns out you can make money at it and you can adjust your economic life where you can that can fill more of your uh, of of your day, that's great. Mm. But uh, you know, if the 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 tragic thing would be a gift that is forever untouched. Yeah. You know, and I think that's that's what really would would I, I could have had. I mean, if I'd done something else in my life, and I had never and I'd done that and not written, I would feel empty. Yeah. But had I done, you know, had a full time job and wrote in the margins, I think I'd still feel satisfied. Yeah. Um, I want to, in closing, just thank you for all of the topics we've we've discussed, um, and more so just for your time. Um, I know you are, you're a busy guy and your work is prolific. Uh, and I just appreciate the hospitality of you allowing me into your home and into your office and, uh, getting to pester you with all these silly questions that I have for you. So, um, yeah, in in closing, I just want to express some gratitude for the work you do and, and the life you've lived and, um, how productive you have been. And, and especially for today's conversation, it was really great to meet you. Well, it was really fun for me, Dan. Thanks for, for, for having, for inviting, finding yourself over. so we could talk. <laughs> I'll do it anytime. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you for listening to this episode of keep talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show.